So this morning we're finishing a six-part series, and the series is called Possessions. And the uh, sort of ideas underneath that series are that we have a relationship with the things that we own and the money that allows us to purchase those things, that we have possessions. But there is a spiritual nature to the way we own things and the currency in which we use to exchange and get more of those things. And that at times, those things that we possess can actually end up possessing us. And so as we conclude this series this morning, we're looking at a text in a very, very ancient book of the Bible called Leviticus. And this book of the Bible is mainly concerned with things like holiness, rituals, and codes for uh, cleanliness and purity and things like that. But smack dab in the middle is this incredible passage that talks about our relationship with money and land and bankruptcy and capitalism and work days. All types of things are found here in this passage. And last week, we talked about a similar passage in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 15, which was focused primarily around financial debt being forgiven during this Sabbath year, this seventh year. And this morning, we're continuing to unpack and uncover those things. So if you didn't hear last week's message, um, this one is going to build off of some of those ideas. And uh, if you're interested, you might wanna go back and, and listen to that one as well. So one thing I've asked throughout this series is for anyone listening to engage your imagination. Because here's the thing, texts like these run very counter to the realities that we live with every day. And what we can do, what I do very often, is I just sit with things like the reality that's around me and say, that's just the way things have to be. That's just the only way it kind of works. That's the only way I've seen it work, so maybe that's the only way it does work. But the prophets in the Bible and the writers of the scriptures never believed that just because something looked a certain way, that that's the only way that it could be or that's the only way that it should be. And so I want to ask you to imagine some things that maybe you've never seen before. I want, I want you to imagine a world where generational poverty didn't exist. That each family had their own property and, and that in this imagination, the deck was stacked not against the most vulnerable people, not the people who had the least uh, was the deck stacked against them, but in fact, it was for them that all the cards were on the side of the most vulnerable people, and that, that no matter what happened, that they would get re-access re back to their land, back to their housing, back to um, their livelihood and their life, and that could not be taken away. That's the kind of world that the writer of Leviticus, the writers of Leviticus, potentially Moses, is portraying to us here. And it's not even in this scripture, it's not sort of like, hey, you guys wanna consider this? It's, 
it's portrayed in a way that this is actually integrally and inseparably tied to who God is, to who God is. Right in the middle of a bunch of laws about how holy God is, how we need to be pure as a people of God, the Israelites need to be pure, is this verse, these verses in this chapter about the nature of God and how God deals with debt and property and poverty and all of these types of things. You ever, um, you ever tried to make something that's good last longer than it's supposed to? Like, hey, you know what? That first dinner plate, it was really good. I think I'm gonna get a second one, regardless if my stomach is screaming at me right now. Or, you know, I'm just gonna go, just gonna go have a drink at the bar, you know, one drink. But you know what? That one drink really made me feel good. So what would happen if, if I like tripled that? I bet I would feel three times as good, right? Or, or you know, what if uh, you ever thought of like, hey, you know what? Doing that task at work and getting the praise that came from it felt so great. And that's kind of the best way I know how to get affirmation. So what if, what if I worked 60 hours this week instead of 40? What if, what if I was the hardest working person in my company? No, sorry, son, I don't have time to play with you because I'm too busy getting my accolades at work. Or what if we thought, you know what? $100,000 a year is a pretty good salary. I bet I could double that and I would feel twice as good. Nobody, huh? You're all, you're all so quiet. I can relate to a lot of those things. Um, and and self-improvement's not a bad thing. Not at all. In trying to improve our lifestyle isn't, isn't a bad thing at all. But when our desire to get as much profit, extract as much as we can out of the world, the people, the resources around us, and the desire to look better than the person next to us, keeping up with the Joneses, Robert mentioned that a couple weeks ago, or trying to distinguish ourselves as maybe owners and possessors of things from those who are merely, merely renters or workers, when those things become the underlying pull of our progress, our, our desire to have more, to be more, to do more, then we end up destroying the very world that we live in. I think we're drawn to do this like a moth to a flame for a couple, two different reasons. And they, and they go together. One reason is just there's um, human nature. Uh, we have a, a sort of seems like an ingrained ability to think that the material world can fully satisfy us if we get enough of something whether it's enough of a certain kind of job like we talked about before, or food or alcohol or sex or whatever it might be, we, we have this idea that seems to just be stuck inside of us that somewhere along the way, if we get just enough of it, we will find full satisfaction. And it never happens. It never happens. The second 
uh, second, second reason that I want to mention this morning is I think um, part of our economic system, not the system itself, but the beliefs underneath it are perpetuating that type of mindset within us. So when we talk about capitalism, uh, we're talking about profit that should never cease or cease to get higher, right? So this idea that that's what needs to motivate human beings, that's the belief underneath, right? That profit should and should always go up and that human beings need that in order to motivate us. I'm sorry, those of you that brought your family and I'm up here, you know, tacking a foundation of American, you know, thinking and, and things like, I understand that I'm doing that and I'm sorry. Uh, so that that motivates people and also that competition is what motivates us. That to do better than another company, another family, that that's what motivates us as human beings. These are, these are the ideas, the foundations of capitalism, and also that the distinction between workers and owners is what motivates us. You're a worker, well, you could one day be successful enough to be an owner, and then you get to treat the other people like workers. That those beliefs undergird our economic system. And the belief says that if you wanna do well or you want people to do well, they need to be motivated by those three things. By an endless supply of ever-increasing profit, of constant competition between other people and businesses and organizations, and that you might start out as a worker, but you could end up like an owner and one should offer you a better existence than the other. The reason why I bring this up in this passage is not to create family strife at lunch today, but in order to draw a distinction from that and what the text is talking about. And I think it's extremely important to do that because of how often God in this scripture associates God's self with this type of living, with this type of belief system, with this type of way of valuing other human beings. And so remember what I told you at the beginning, what are you gonna have to use and expand and ask God to play in and work in inside of your mind today? Your what? Your imagination. We all need our imagination that we might have the mind of Christ as we think about these ideas and as we think about how they could trickle into or rush into our world and our life. So let's look at these first couple of verses here. Verses eight through 12. It says, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. So the Sabbath is a day of rest in the seven day cycle. We see it first when the earth is created by God and on the seventh day, God rested. And then the people of Israel adopt that. That's what forms and shapes their calendar and their way of living. And then that happens not just every seven days, but every seventh year. And then not just every seventh year, but then also when you go seven years, seven cycles of seven years, you get to this 50th year and it's like a mega uber 
epic meta Sabbath, right? I just try to use all the words that like show up in a meme, right? So then in verse nine, have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seven month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Day of atonement, one of the most important days in the whole uh, Jewish calendar. 10, verse 10, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. Verse 12, for it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. The people hearing this message would have had a hard time wrapping their minds around this message as well. These families and individuals are just a few breaths away, a few steps in the desert away from living in grueling slavery in which they were forced into by the Egyptian rulers. And their whole world, their whole identity was in how hard they could work, how much they could produce. And all they had as consolation was their bitterness and resentment to the Egyptian rulers over them. And here, here we have a divine edict, a statute coming from God saying, I want you to rest. I want your entire calendar to revolve around rest. This would have been so difficult for them to understand. And here's why I think that it might have been. Because when we don't rest, what are we doing? Why do we not rest? Because we're insecure, because we lack security in some area of our life, because we need to shore up something. We need to shore up how somebody feels about us. We need to shore up our economic situation. We need to shore up how we feel about ourselves inside. And so we just are restless. We move around from thing to thing and we, we, we busy ourselves. We tell ourselves that it's good because we're doing maybe good things or we're providing for our family or we're doing fill in the blank. I have to get all A's right now, whatever it might be, right? And, and so we seek to manage when we're restless, we seek to manage every little thing in our lives in hopes that we can shore it up enough to make ourselves safe enough, safe enough that then one day we will rest. It's not today and it's not tomorrow and it's not next week, but one day we will. One day we'll be so safe one day we'll be able to see everything so clearly. We'll be able to look around and manage every threat, whatever it might look like. And finally we'll go, I'm safe. And then I can rest. I don't know, that's probably not the way any of you guys ever think or respond to life, but I, I can relate to it. You know what the problem with that is besides 
uh, neurosis and anxiety and needing antidepressants or self-medication of drinking or something like that, besides all those things. The problem is we try to put ourselves in a position that only God can fill. Are we able to save ourselves? If we, if we were, I guess we probably wouldn't be sitting here, would we? If we were able to say, if we really thought we could save ourselves, we probably wouldn't be sitting in this room right now. But that's what we do when we fail to rest. We believe subconsciously that we are our own saviors. If we finally just work hard enough, one day we will provide the own, our own rest that we need. Listen to this verse from the Psalms, these couple of verses from Psalm 121, verses one through three. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. And verse four as well. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We can rest because God doesn't. We don't have to author our own salvation. We don't have to shore up every little detail in our lives. I'm not saying don't be responsible. I'm saying rest because God is the only one who can do what we think we're gonna do when we say, I don't got time to rest. If we don't consider this as viable for our lives, Rest, Sabbath. I'm not talking about restructuring the, you know, Gregorian calendar to fit this. I'm just talking about regular rest. And none of the rest of any of this, you can't even, you can't even get anywhere with it. You can't even entertain, you can't even do anything with it. Which is why it starts here with rest. I want you to hear something. When you pursue rest, you might say, I don't know how to rest, Jamin. Even when I try to rest, I can't rest. I don't know how to do it. When you pursue, when you go on a path to figure out how to rest, how to truly rest in your life, you gotta find somebody that knows how, and you gotta ask them to disciple you and teach you how to do it. When you do that, you are doing holy work. That is holy work. It is the God of the Bible, the prophets who spoke in and through the, and to the people of God, they said, you guys are ignoring the Sabbath. And God is so pissed because you're screwing everything up. I just want you to rest. It's holy. And this goes together with this day that this starts on when the Jubilee, when the ram's horn is sounded, this day of atonement, Yom Kippur, on this day, every, every, every year, the Jewish people would gather together and the priests would lay hands on these two goats. And one of them was called the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, the priest would, would symbolically and, and by prayer put the, the sins of all the people on that scapegoat. 
All the, all the sins that the people had committed collectively, individually, everyone that you'd forgotten about and all those kinds of things, and that would send that goat out into the desert. And the purpose of that was to release and to relieve the people of their guilt. Guilt weighs something. And when we labor under the burden of guilt, we don't rest. You know that, don't you? You know that when there's something gnawing inside of you that you're guilty about, that you've done somebody wrong and you haven't confessed it. You haven't opened it up into the light so that it can be sent out away, that it can be removed. And so we find here, this is no coincidence. It's not just a tack on, well, we got two important things to do. Let's just do them at the same time, right? Like you got a, you got a, a, a Super Bowl party and you, 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 you know you want to eat, you know, right, but you also want to eat queso. And so you try to mix two things. It's not like just some silly coincidental thing like that. I don't know why I thought about the Super Bowl right now. It's not February. Didn't think about that one in advance, right? But these two things go together because it's two things that we can't do. We can't remove and fix our guilt and we can't work hard enough that we can rest because we've saved ourselves from all the variables and all the things in life. And so these things go together, rest and rest from your guilt. Know that you are forgiven, know that you are taken care of. And what does that mean? Does that mean that then we all then just look forward to the day when we die and we float off to heaven, which isn't actually in the Bible anyway? Or does it mean that we then turn and look to our neighbors and say, how can I relieve the burdens on you? And so the whole calendar revolved around a system of rest, of trusting God, of knowing that it's not my own abilities by myself, doing my own thing, being so holy and awesome and getting all the stuff done and shoring up all my properties and all my things and all my family members stuff so that God will save me because I earned it. Instead, it's a system of remembering that we are not God, that we need help from one another, that we need salvation from beyond ourselves, that we are meant to live together interdependently in the world that God has given us charge over. When Jesus comes on the scene, He gives us a new picture, a new, a new way of understanding what this could look like in a different circumstance. Because just like, just like we are not in the circumstance of the people that it was, this was written to in the book of Leviticus out there in the desert, nor were the Jewish people in the same situation when Jesus came around. And yet Jesus spoke about the Jubilee. And here's what he said in Luke chapter four, verses 18 through 21. He said, the spirit of, Lord is, the, spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
the year of Jubilee. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That, that tells me a lot of things that Jesus said that that could be, that that was fulfilled in your hearing. One of the things it tells me is that the ways that we live our lives we can embody a year of Jubilee. That, that, that that's a way that we can live our lives, releasing debts, allowing ourselves to be released from debts, allowing ourselves to rest and to be a refreshing presence in our world. The book of Leviticus continues in verse 13. It says, in this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. And they are to sell to you on the basis of the numbers of years left for harvesting crops. What does that mean? When the years are many, you are to increase the price. And when the years are few, you are to decrease the price because, because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Because it's not the land, you don't own the land permanently. Because when the Jubilee happens, it's going back to who originally owned it. Verse 17, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God, I am the Lord your God. Verse 18, follow my decrees, be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. There's that security keeps coming up. Then the land will yield its fruit. You will eat your fill. You will live there in safety. You may ask, it's a good question. What will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? God says, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. There is a, a writer named Wendelberry, and he writes on agriculture, economics, things like that. And uh, he, he had an incredibly promising career as a writer, and he, he ended up still being an incredible writer of, of much renown, but he left the hot spot of New York or wherever he was. He went back to a family farm in Kentucky, and he started farming the land with a mule and hand tools. And he talks about this thing called topsoil. And topsoil is the first few inches on the ground all over the place. It's especially important where we wanna grow food. And he talks about the irreducible complexity of topsoil. There is no way that human beings can create topsoil, make it faster or, or artificially create it in some kind of lab. You know what creates and sustains and multiplies topsoil, the only layer in which we can actually effectively grow food for? Rest. When we don't rest, the land doesn't rest. And these ancient people, they're like, well, what, do, what are we going to eat? And today we have every way of trying to get around rest and trying to become more and more efficient 
And yet what science also tells us is that if we don't rest, we remove the source of life that God has given us. What will we eat? This is the question. This is the question that cries out of our insecurities. And God says, hey, it's my earth. If you rest, you can eat. If you let other people rest, if you let the immigrants that are out there picking those tomatoes and getting pesticides all over them and, and going blind, you let them rest, you can eat. Verse 21, I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. Verse 23, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. How would you spend your time and money if, if you thought that the time in which you were the most successful, felt the most energetic, when things the most went your way was going to increase without end through the rest of your life? If you thought the decisions, the business decisions I'm making right now today, I'm going to project as if this, this, these good, uh, uh, this good revenue I'm getting, this good profit I'm getting, all these things, it's going to continue endlessly. I'm gonna continue to do the, the kinds of investments and the th kinds of things that I'm doing. Well, you can just look at the 0.01% of billionaires out there right now. That's how they live, that's how they, that's how they do things. But we could do it too, whether we make $30,000 or 50 or 150, that kind of thing. But when we look at this scripture, it puts that in check. You might've had good fortune. Somebody else might've had bad fortune. Somebody might've died over here. Their crops might've failed over there. The, the, the roll of the dice, who your parents were, how you ended up got to, got to the place that you're at, what kind of things you're gonna inherit when somebody in your family dies, all those kinds of things. But guess what? When that year of Jubilee comes, you get to gladly return to your humble origins so that other people can return to theirs and we can all live together, not one above the other, not one lording over the other, not one acting as if they are a parent to the other because God's creation had somehow afforded them more than somebody else. Whew. You know, the, the New Testament writers, I think, one of the reasons why we don't hear about this much in evangelical church. The New Testament writers talked a lot about this physical earthly land and, and, and they, they imagined and they prophesied of the heavenly place that we would inherit as, as, as Christians, as believers in the way of Jesus and in the salvation that Jesus offered but it wasn't to devalue the earth. 
It wasn't to devalue the dignity of being able to live on your own land, steward your own things, and feel like you belong into an interconnected web of human flourishing. It wasn't because of that. In fact, it was because the people of the Bible are almost always in the position of being oppressed. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, his people are oppressed, they're downtrodden, they're ruled over ruthlessly once again. It's by Rome this time, it was by Babylon before that, it was by the Assyrians before that, it was by the Egyptians before that. And the writers say, and Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And we're looking forward to to a kingdom and a place with foundations that cannot be shaken. No, no, it wasn't to devalue the physical. It was to elevate the people who were being crushed by the injustice of how the physical was being used and handled. And they knew, they knew that a God of justice would not allow that to go unchecked and forever and always. And so they knew that there would be a time when each would have their own, as the prophet Isaiah said, that every man would sit under his own fig tree or whatever fruit it was and live to a ripe old age. Yeah, that there would be a day of rest. Yeah, so what one of the things the Bible's saying right here in this passage is don't live above your means. Don't live above your means. If you can't rest because the idea that you've got to get more and better all the time has put you into such a financial position that you can't afford any free time to help somebody, that you can't afford any money to support the initiatives and the ministries that you say and you verbalize are important to you, then you're living above your means. That's part of why we have this money uh, workshop. Mastering money is what it's called that Robert's doing. He's really passionate about helping people think through all their finances and work on on plans and and imagine and, and, and share information. And there's a whole list of things that are happening in our newsletter in that workshop. And I want everybody to go to it. I want you to sign up. I want you to go to it so that you can, I don't care if you're great with money, go to it anyways. That's why we have childcare. That's why we're providing food. That's why it costs money. You've got to have some skin in the game if you believe that this is important to God. And if you don't, if you don't got the 15 bucks, we'll, we'll spot you. We got you. If you need the scholarship to get there, but get there. Another thing I want to say about this um, with the pandemic, a lot of our priorities have changed in life. A lot of us realized that we weren't resting, that, that we were living at an unsustainable pace. But I think that's also affected a lot of churches in a variety of ways, but I think one of the ways is this this propaganda of 
profit at all costs, of improvement at all costs, of comparison about who's doing better and who's not. That's that infiltrated the theology and the ethos of the church to such a degree that some people said, oh, great. I don't have to worry about all that debt and guilt and stuff that I felt at church. I don't have to come in there and feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm, I'm trying to tell you right now today to rest because that's what God seems to value. That's what our earth seems to be screaming for is to rest. So counter, counter to all of the wisdom, not all the wisdom, a lot of the wisdom out there in our culture, if you wanna get your money straight, if you wanna be able to put your money and your efforts and your things toward a higher purpose, what you might need is to learn holy rest. I had, um, I had a lot more uh, to say about this scripture. There's, a lot, of, there's a, a, a lot here. There's so many things, but this series has been going on for six weeks and I think, you know, I think that's long enough. I think I'm gonna let this series rest. <laughs>